Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity International University. I'm Matthew Epinet, Executive Director of the Center. As we prepare for our 30th annual conference, June 22 through 24, available in person and online, this episode of the podcast features another of the plenary addresses from the very first conference in 1994. Our speaker in this episode is the late Dr. Alan Verhey, and in his address, he takes a careful look at the concept of autonomy and compares it to Martin Luther's freedom of the Christian. Before we get to Dr. Verhey's talk, did you know that the complete archives of the Bioethics Podcast are available through your favorite podcast platform? That's 233 episodes stretching all the way back to February 2006. The Bioethics Podcast is hosted on Spotify for podcasters, but it's available on all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Overcast, and so on. It's also available on our website, cbhd.org. And now, Dr. Alan Verhey. Dr. Verhey was published widely and was the author, editor, or co-editor of 12 books. He's perhaps best known for Reading the Bible in the Strange World of Medicine. His final book was The Christian Art of Dying. Dr. Verhey died at age 68 in February 2014 after a long struggle with amyloidosis. Here is his 1994 address, Luther's Freedom of the Christian and Patient Autonomy. Protestantism is a movement of protest, but the protest that lives and moves in Protestantism is not simply a protest against something. The name comes from the Latin word protestare, which means to give testimony, to be a witness on behalf of something or on behalf of someone. Protestantism is a movement of affirmation, of testimony. And if it was, and if it remains, against certain things, that is because it was and remains more fundamentally for some other things. Some of the things to which Protestantism has consistently given testimony can be found in the story of its beginnings. In 1517, a young German monk and theologian named Martin Luther wrote a little work called 95 Theses. And it was a protest, of course, against the medieval church's practice of indulgences, uh, selling indulgences on the promise that one could speed one's soul through purgatory by a purchase. Luther's protest against indulgences was at the same time a testimony to his conviction that the mercy of God could not be earned or purchased, but only received from the free grace of God. Luther had intended only to open a little debate about indulgences, but his testimony to the free grace of God developed into a widespread demand for thorough reform of the medieval church, and he quickly found himself in an enormous struggle with Leo X over fundamental questions of the thought and the life of the church. The breach became, between them came already in 1520. That was the year that Leo X excommunicated Luther and Luther wrote three treatises that gave shape to Protestant testimony, and one of them was called The Freedom of a Christian. Since that time, it has been clear, I think, that one of the things that Protestants have consistently been for is freedom. 
And a case could be made that contemporary bioethics, in contemporary bioethics, one of the things that the Protestant mainstream is consistently for is freedom. Indeed, Robert Veach makes precisely that case. And let me quote him. Perhaps the most important contribution of Protestant thinkers to medical ethics has not been over specific substantive issues, but more in their approach to medical ethical problems. Protestants are, by tradition, committed to giving the layperson an increased role in ethical and theological matters. Protestants believe that the text ought to be in the hands of the layperson. This has manifested itself in medical ethics with a heavy emphasis on the role of the layperson having access to medical information and in making decisions about his or her own care. Many Protestant commentators on medical ethics have emphasized freedom, of course. The genesis of this pro approach reaches back to Luther and the Reformation and to a lively tradition of refusing to submit to the arbitrary despotism of clerical or political hierarchies. And then in mid-20th century, the Protestant, Protestant chaplains refused to submit to a medical hierarchy and called attention to certain features of modern medicine that they regarded as depersonalizing. Terribly important word in the mid-50s, depersonalizing. And when Protestant moral theologians began to turn their attention to the new problems of medicine and to the new powers of medicine, they took up the theme of the chaplains. Joe Fletcher, for example, when he still was a Protestant, described, and of course he was never an evangelical, uh, described his early work as personalist. He developed the notion of respect for persons along the lines of respect for choices. And he emphasized the moral importance of free and informed consent. And he underscored in chapter titles in On Moral Medicine and in Exposition a number of rights. And similarly, Paul Ramsey announced the theme for his groundbreaking work in the title, The Patient as Person. And Ramsey used the notion of person as a kind of Kantian check against medicine's devotion to maximizing benefits. Whether the benefit was in, in research, knowledge, or in clinical care, life. Ramsey insisted that free and informed consent was critical to the notion of respect for persons and important to the canon of loyalty, the covenant that linked physician to patient. Now, Fletcher and Ramsey, of course, uh, disagreed fundamentally about a number of questions around the issue of freedom. They disagreed, for example, about who counted as a person. And they disagreed about whether respect for autonomous choices was a sufficient account of respect for persons. And it would be kind of fun to pursue the differences between Ramsey and Fletcher. But enough has been said to make two simple points. One, Protestants introduced the notion of freedom to the public debate about medical ethics. And two, freedom means different things to different people. Today, of course, there continues to be an enormous emphasis on freedom or autonomy within medical ethics. 
When Derek Comfrey's self-deliverance recipe book is celebrated, it's celebrated as maximizing freedom. It may be self-determination run amok, but it's surely self-determination. When people justify consensual killing, they are talking about freedom. When people claim a right to use new reproductive technologies to do what they can to have a child and the child of their choosing, we're talking about freedom, autonomy. <clears throat> There's little doubt that autonomy is Trump in much public discourse and in much of the literature on medical ethics. We talk freedom a lot, but we seldom talk about freedom, except to celebrate it. We seldom get reflective about it. Before we turn back to Luther's treatise to get a little more reflective about freedom, permit me a very rude sketch of some of the different conceptions of autonomy in the philosophical literature. There has, after all, been considerable philosophical discussion about freedom. There's first of all what I would call Kantian autonomy. Immanuel Kant, in his effort to describe the foundations of ethics, treated autonomy as a basic condition of moral agency. He insisted that, mo that principles acquired moral force not by being demanded by anything other than the rational moral agent. Not, for example, by being demanded by God. Not by being demanded by some political authority. Not by being demanded by a professional authority. Not by being taught by a tradition, whether a, a religious tradition or a medical tradition. Not by being instructive, or not by being instructed by natural instincts or desires, including the instinct uh, to preserve one's life. The moral law could only be imposed on one's self and only through one's moral reason. That's Kantian autonomy. The moral agent, to be a moral agent, had to choose and act in accordance with one's own rational principles. A second position close to Kant's is John Rawls. In a theory of justice, he holds that the principles of justice, maximum freedom and presumptive equality, are the principles that free and rational and self-interested agents would adopt in an idealized situation that he calls the original position. In that idealized situation, there is a veil of ignorance, he says. And the veil of ignorance means that we do not know who we are. We do not know what our communities are, what our identities are, what our interests are, what our age is, what our sex is. We know nothing about ourselves. And in that situation, we all come together and have to agree on a set of principles to govern our life together when the veil is lifted. Then some of us will be rich, but who? And some of us will be female, but who? Choosing and acting autonomously is a matter of choosing and acting on principles that one cons would consent to in such a situation. <coughs> 
A third position agrees that autonomy is a fundamental feature of moral agency, but it conceives of autonomy quite differently as authenticity. On this account, autonomy is the freedom to choose and to act in ways that are authentic to the particular self one chooses to be. It's the freedom to make choices for oneself without being constrained by a Kantian rationality or a Rawlsian original position or any universal standard. Like Kant, you see, these people insist that no objective tr moral truth can be found in nature or in tradition or in theology, but unlike Kant, they also deny that such a standard could be found in reason. A choice or an action may be regarded as autonomous when it accords with the principle that one actually accepts for oneself as a particular individual one is. That's enough. I was going to give you a fourth and fifth position, but you under, you, enough has been said to, uh, to get the point. The language of freedom, of autonomy, is not quite the universal moral language the kind of moral Esperanto that we sometimes assume it is. Freedom means different things to different people. Its meaning depends on the fuller accounts of the moral life within which it makes sense and different sense to different people. I'm not going to put to rest this continuing debate among the philosophers, surely not by citing Luther. But on the other hand, unlike Mark Anthony's cause with Caesar, I have not come to bury autonomy, but to praise it. Respect for freedom is an honorable principle. And I have come to praise it and to see what it looks like within the fuller and richer account of the moral life that Luther provides. Luther's treatise testifies to the sovereignty of a gracious God and the sovereignty of God means at least the freedom of God. And the sovereign grace of God establishes the freedom of the Christian. The freedom of God, remember, was not arbitrary or capricious. It was the freedom of God to be God, to be the righteous and gracious sovereign disclosed in Jesus Christ, the suffering servant who is Lord, and in the word that testifies to that Christ. And the freedom of the Christian, too, was not an arbitrary thing, not capricious. It was the freedom to have Christ as Lord, to choose and to act, to live in the righteousness and grace of God, to be the, a servant of God and the neighbor. So in Luther's paradoxical but illuminating propositions, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant to all, subject to all. Luther's witness to the grace of God required that he protest not only against abuses in the sale of indulgences, but also against a sacramental system which seemed to Luther to domesticate the grace of God, to make it manipulable, and to diminish both the freedom of God and the freedom of the Christian. The grace of God is free. 
and it can only be received by faith, never earned by works, whether works of the law or works of sacramental observance. And joined to that testimony and protest was Luther's revision of the penitential system as well. The Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 had, re had required annual confession to one's priest. The priest in the confessional functioned as jurist, identifying sins and determining a fit penance. Canon law provided the basis for such adjudication, and confessional manuals were developed to aid the priest in discovering and dealing with a variety of sins, including the sins of physicians and patients. By means of this practice and the casuistic literature which guided it, the medieval church exercised a remarkable control over every aspect of life, including medicine. Now Luther can hardly be said to have minimized the significance of repentance, but the root sin for Luther was a failure to trust God. And he warned against the juridical and casuistic practice of the confessional as an invitation to self-justification. So ironically, you see, Luther's heightened sense of sin issued in a diminished attention to sins. And the number and the gravity of particular sins was not nearly as significant as the fundamental failure to trust God. Luther was suspicious of legalism and moralism and casuistry and any juridical role for the clergy. And it was not just the sacramental system and its practice of penance which needed reform, but the hierarchical structure of the church as well. Luther rejected the authority of the Pope, not just because Leo X had excommunicated him, but fundamentally because such authority misrepresented the way Christ's authority functions and diminished the freedom of Christians. All are subject to Christ, the servant. And in Christ, each is Lord of all, subject to none, and servant of all, subject to all. Each believer, Luther said, was baptized into Christ and had put on Christ and was called to represent Christ to the neighbor. Through baptism, all of us are consecrated to the priesthood, Luther said. This priesthood of all believers made each Christian an intermediary between God and the neighbor. Each one was gifted and called to represent the grace of God to the neighbor and to intercede for the neighbor to God. The dignity of the individual believer was, of course, underscored in that phrase, but so was the importance and the necessity of Christian community. The claim is not, after all, that each is one's own priest, or at least that wasn't the claim Luther made, but rather that each is the priest to the other. And it's through this mutual ministry that the priesthood and the rule of Christ in the church is signaled not through the arbitrary dominance of a pope or a cleric, and surely not through the kind of individualism of self-interest. Each believer as priest, Luther goes on to say, has a vocation or a calling to service. 
Luther rejected the double standard of the medieval church which distinguished religious callings from secular callings. Both alike were called to service. The secular or this worldly calling of the cobbler and of the caregiver was given a dignity no less than the religious work of the priest or monk. And in the exercise of that vocation, the believer's freedom was not to be arbitrarily diminished by a priest or canon law. Now before I return to the freedom or the autonomy of patience, it's worth observing that this Protestant notion served to emancipate physicians from the control of the church. It nurtured the autonomy of the profession. Protestant physicians were free to let medicine be medicine while God was God. Protestants were suspicious of efforts, of efforts to earn salvation or health by works of pilgrimage or the proper invocation of saints. They were suspicious of the juridical power of the clergy and of the penitential casuistry by which the church had exercised such control. The 16th century medical practice was not much advanced from the medical practice of, the, of medieval times, but the physician was suddenly in a position to look to the scientist instead of to the cleric for advice about the practice. The notion of the priesthood of all believers emancipated physicians and nurtured the autonomy of the profession. It gave their work a new dignity and a new direction. Their priesthood, after all, made them not only perfectly free lord of all, but also the perfectly dutiful servant of all. Their science and their medicine were called and ordered to the relief of humanity. With the development of the sciences in the 17th century, there developed an optimistic, indeed a millennial expectation of great benefits to humanity through medicine. And those extravagant expectations, joined with this image of the physician as priest, licensed a presumption of great authority and paternalistic conduct among physicians. And that paternalism, which has its own roots in the Reformation, is one reason for the contemporary emphasis on patient autonomy. Because patients have callings too, after all. And the calling of Christian patients is never simply their own survival. In the exercise of their vocation, the freedom of patients is not to be arbitrarily diminished by clerics or by physicians. The Christian patient may decide that there are tasks like reconciliation with an enemy or fellowship with friends or simply fun with a family which override the duty to preserve their life. There are goods which override the good of their own survival. I've come to praise autonomy, not to bury it. It should also be clear, however, against the background of Luther's treatise, that the freedom that Protestants celebrate is not quite identical to the autonomy celebrated in the bioethics literature. Permit me to draw three brief contrasts and one extended contrast between Rawls and Luther.
Rawls claims that the principle of maximum freedom is a freestanding principle, chosen independently of any embeddedness in a particular story. Remember, the veil of ignorance has dropped, and still we choose maximum freedom. But of course, there is a story. And the story is precisely that we have no stories. The, the, the story is the story of the original position. The first contrast is about community. In the original position, we are all as strangers to each other. And freedom exists to protect strangers from each other. In Luther's story, we are all as priests to each other. And freedom exists to protect our capacities to serve each other. I worry that the contemporary notion of autonomy is powerless to nurture genuine community. The second contrast is about the self. In Rawls' original position, the selves do not know their interests, but they are self-interested. In Luther's story, the selves are loved by God and called to service of the neighbor. And I worry that the contemporary notion of autonomy will form selves for whom morality is always just a constraint against our inclination to pursue our own interests. And the third contrast is about morality itself. In Rawls' account, this, the critical moral question is whose decision is it to make? The procedural question so monopolizes attention that substantive moral questions, questions about what should be decided and what sort of person should I be in making these decisions, those substantive moral questions get pushed to the margins. In Luther's story, freedom is only part of God's cause and it exists to serve God's cause. And the cause of God determines both the uses of freedom and the sort of person I am to be and to become. I worry that the contemporary notion of freedom pushes serious moral conversations about what should be decided to the margins of public discourse. Now finally, I want to draw a contrast between Luther's Augustinian account of freedom and the contemporary Pelagian account. Sounds like a good Calvinist move. And, and I want to apply this, or attempt to apply this, to uh, physician-assisted suicide. Pelagius had described human freedom as the capacity <coughs> of a neutral agent to make choices unconstrained and uncoerced, to contemplate options without internal or external restraints. There's just sort of equipoise, you see, between good and evil, undetermined even by their own previous choices. Neutral selves can will what they will. And the evidence for freedom on this account is inconsistency. 
The evidence for freedom is unpredictability, arbitrariness, the ability to will one thing one moment and the contrary thing the next. Augustine and Luther and Calvin saw nothing to cherish or respect in such an account of freedom. In their view, there are no neutral selves, no indeterminate agents who face choices unformed by the past, and no choices which do not form the determinate features of our common life and of ourselves. The reformers appreciated the significance of the determinate features of our common life as much as they appreciated the importance of freedom. Particular human beings and their choices are formed by their natural endowments, by their communities, by their culture, by their past choices, by the choices of others with respect to them. And these features of human existence do limit human freedom, but it's precisely these features of human existence which also enable human freedom. There is no human freedom which does not marshal those endowments and weigh the claims of particular communities and interpret the culture and assess past choices and respond to actions upon us. People do all that, of course, not from some disinterested point in transcendence over all of that, but engaged in that, engaged with that, engaged with the determinate features of their existence. And the exercise of freedom, the exercise of freedom, determines not just one little discrete action cut off from the past or the future. It determines a whole self. The evidence of freedom on this model is not arbitrariness, but precisely consistency and predictability. And the point I want to make is this, that our choices, even the presumably innocent choice to maximize freedom, will express and form determinate features of our life and of our common life. In the name of freedom, we may ironically increase our bondage. The point can be illustrated with respect to technology. Technology is frequently introduced as a way to increase our options, to maximize our freedom. But it can quickly become socially enforced. It can become part of the determinate features of our existence. The car was introduced as an option to the horse. But you wouldn't want to ride a horse home on the interstate. The technology that surrounds our dying was introduced to give doctors and patients options in the face of disease and death. But such options have become socially enforced. At least just sometimes here, we have no choice. Moreover, even if a particular option does not become socially enforced, simply providing the option can shape the determinate features of our, of our life and of our common life. 
our choice even to regard certain things as choices forms selves and society. Consider, for example, the life of a night clerk at the convenience store. One determinate feature of her life is frequently identified on the front door. The night clerk cannot open the safe. Now, suppose that in order to maximize her freedom, we give her the option of opening the safe. But you see, to increase her options in this way is to change the determinate features of her existence. And not necessarily happily or innocently. I also want to note that increasing options can eliminate options. Now suppose that I invite you to dinner. And it's presented, of course, as an option. But by increasing your options, I have effectively eliminated what you may suddenly recognize as the option you would have preferred. The option that you had a moment ago but have no longer. Namely, the option of both not spending three hours with Verhey and not having to justify that decision to anybody. <laughs> the invitation increased your options. It maximized your freedom in, the, in a way, but it also eliminated an option. If we begin to regard assisted suicide as an option, we may increase options, but we may also effectively eliminate an option, namely staying alive without having to justify one's existence. Now that happens to be an option that I would like to protect and preserve for it fits the story of life as a gift. And there is this point that the very giving of a choice can create some pressure to make a particular choice. The point's not a subtle one. I think it gets lost only when we overestimate our autonomy and independence. Our sense of self is always confused with our interpretation of what others think of us. The, the suicide threat, after all, is at least sometimes a call for help. And to reply to such an inquiry by giving an option can all too easily be read as an answer to that inquiry about whether anybody really cares. It can affect the resources that a person has for choosing still to live. And if that's true in individual cases, it's also true culturally. Providing the choice of assisted suicide to the vulnerable, to the dependent, to those who are no longer in control is recommended doubtlessly and genuinely as a way to increase their options, to enable them to assert their independence and to take control. It expresses a culture and it forms attitudes that value autonomy and independence and control. The effect of maximizing freedom in this way 
may be to make it more difficult for the sick and the suffering, more difficult for the dependent, more difficult for those who seem not to be in control, more difficult for all of them to refuse the option of death, harder to justify their existence. The social innovation in the name of increasing options not only eliminates the option of receiving life as a given, it also shapes the way the options will be perceived when life is a choice. Giving people the option of dueling is an instructive parallel. We no longer give people that option. I think that's moral progress. Of course, people still have the option, but we don't give social legitimation for the option. And the point is not simply to express disapproval of dueling. The point is rather to observe the relationship between determinate features of a culture and the options that it provides and the pressure, that, the pressure on choices that members of those cultures make. The social choice to provide the option of dueling expressed a determinate culture namely one obsessed with honor. Providing the option reinforced that feature of the culture. But that very feature of the culture, this obsession with honor, made it more difficult not to throw down, more difficult not to pick up the gauntlet. Now our culture may be obsessed with individual autonomy, with control. And it would express and reinforce that feature of our common life by offering dependent people a choice, offering them an option which extends self-control. But the reason that we have for giving the option may well make it more difficult for people not to throw in the towel. If we choose to give this option, we're choosing not just a discrete piece of social policy, but a pattern for our life together which asks the weak and the sick to justify their existence. But to refuse freely to give that option is to choose for ourselves a pattern of life where life is received as a gift even when it cannot be cherished as a gift. And where being dependent on others and on God is accepted as our common situation. And then we would have returned to a freedom somewhat closer to Luther's sense. And I thank you all very much. That was the late Dr. Alan Verhey speaking on Luther's freedom of the Christian and patient autonomy. From the conference that launched the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, way back in 1994. Our 30th annual conference, The Christian Stake in Bioethics Revisited, is coming up June 22 through 24, and it will be available to attend in person or online. Register now at cbhd.org. As a reminder, the complete archives of the Bioethics Podcast are available through your favorite podcast platform. That's 233, well, now 234, episodes stretching all the way back to February 2006. You've been listening to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, copyright 2023, all rights reserved.
The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the center and to support the work of the center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. My name is Matthew Epinette. I'm the executive director of the center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.